Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. Today is Thursday, August 27th, and we have a special show today. We have a special guest star on our show. We have J.R. Rieger. J.R., welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. All right. And we also have two of our veteran reporters, Kaylin Devitt in Chicago, Illinois, and Kathy O'Donnell from Harrisburg, PA. Welcome, ladies. Hi. All right. So before I hand over the show to you, to our listeners out there in Muniland, a lot of you already know J.R. Rieger, but for the, the ones who are listening and are not familiar with him, let me give you a, b- a brief background. J.R. is a long-term bond market veteran, nearly 40 years. He is currently the owner of the Rieger Report, providing periodic market commentary, perspectives, and insights into the fixed income markets through his newsletter, straighttalkaboutbonds.com. Now that's a mouthful. He's an advisory board member of Bondview. He also serves as a consultant to financial institutions on fixed income analytics, indexing and benchmarking, valuation and compliance related issues. Now, before starting the Riga report, JR was, JR was a managing director and global head of fixed income indices at S&P Dow Jones. While there, JR developed and launched a global suite of debt market indices, resulting in investable index products in 12 countries and totaling over $46 billion in assets under management. So again, JR, welcome to the show. I know um, there's a lot to talk about, and I'll let the ladies handle it from here. Thanks, Ian. Good morning, JR. Thanks for joining us. It's really good to be here today. We wanted to have you on because we've been writing a lot of stories and talking a lot about bond pricing services and how muni bonds are evaluated. Um, The muni market, as most of our listeners know, the muni market is not as liquid as other markets. And so we don't always have that clear market price tag on a bond. So it can be a challenge to figure out how much a bond is worth. And it's really important how much a bond is worth because it's how much it's how uh, mutual funds calculate their net asset value, which they do at the end of every day. And it's also how retail buyers who make up the bulk of the market can figure out how much their bond is worth. So it's it's a very important factor. It can be real challenging because of lack of liquidity, especially in certain sectors like high yield. Um, and I would say that in some ways, the integrity, and I think, Jerry, you've said this before, too, that the integrity of the municipal bond market depends on having accurately valued bonds. So you've started this trade association for pricing service, for the pricing services industry. And as we want to talk about, we want to dig into that. We want to dig into um, why you've done it and some of the challenges in pricing bonds. But before we do that, let's start with you. Young kind of gave you a bio at the top, tell us about um, about you, but tell us a little bit more about your background and kind of what makes you an expert in particular in this area. I fell into bond pricing in 1981, somehow got a job doing research for a bond pricing desk. Uh, it was the J.J. Kenney organization back then. The challenges uh, then are, are very similar to now. 
uh, you know, large volume of, of municipal bonds, uh, very few trade in the secondary market. So how does one go about valuing the, that volume of securities, particularly the securities held by mutual funds? And as time evolved, I, I became a specialist in high yield and distressed securities, particularly uh, illiquid distressed securities, uh, even um, giving expert witness testimony on three different occasions in regards to the valuation of distressed munis. The role over time evolved uh, as data uh, tools, um, particularly uh, computer systems, uh, automation of uh, access to data evolved. Uh, my role became more of a supervisor, a, a teacher, uh, an educator on the valuation process and, and methodologies, uh, including interaction with the regulatory bodies as well as our clients' uh, board of directors at mutual funds, for example, I, I would go in and talk about methodology and its importance uh, in regards to an independent price uh, determination and, and eventually became uh, the head of the global uh, pricing desk uh, before transitioning my career over to uh, uh, benchmarking and indexing. Okay, deep background. So you're starting this trade association, which um, we wrote about last week. And um, just tell us a little bit about what was the trigger that got you to start it now? That, like well, you, said, you just said that the challenges have been around for a while, but so why now? Well, I think that technology and information has never been a more powerful combination for pricing analysts to, to lever in their roles. Uh, that is one reason why now is important. The tools available to pricing analysts uh, have evolved so rapidly, but also the frequency of economic events, uh, certainly negative economic events and economic cycles can magnify the importance of independent pricing, particularly if, if the values aren't moving to reflect the current market dynamics, including liquidity and default risk. Uh, then uh, that raises my eyebrows a bit. So the, the formation of the Global Association of Securities Pricing Analysts is really intended to provide a focus for those that particular skill set. That skill set um, it can benefit from best practices around transparency, independence, pricing methodology, and when and when not to use a fair valuation approach versus a market valuation, why to make that decision, and what information to use and how do you independently verify it. So from my perspective, the time is right for a trade association to enter the market, become an advocate for the price and securities analyst, help set best practices, uh, not, not bring competition to level, uh, playing field. That's not our. That's not the role. The role is to help introduce best practices uh, and educate, so that the pricing analysts can can raise their game uh, during times of economic distress or, or when there's when there are is an event such as the March COVID event that impacted the bond market so so negatively. Jr. Um, back in April when we spoke, um, you told us, and so it was kind of right after that kind of March seizing up of the municipal market, uh, you told us that there were some trades that you looked at as worrisome for 
um, the reputation of the municipal market. Can you elaborate a little bit um, by, on what you meant by that? I sure can. You know, when you look at the movement of exchange traded funds that represent different fixed income asset classes, particularly uh, high yield munis and particularly high yield or junk corporate bonds, you can see that the market reflected very negatively uh, and dramatically so in the valuation of those share prices. Now, ETFs aren't you know, the, the share price is, it, they're traded on an exchange. They're not over the counter. Uh, so there is a difference in, in the, in the um, ability to react uh, to the market dynamics. But clearly the marketplace saw a severe distress in both high yield munis and high yield or junk corporate bonds. And, and that was reflected in the share prices of, of the ETFs that, that have those exposures. When you look at some of the trading on some of the individual municipal bonds, there was a severe disconnect in my point of view in regards to the, to the perceived risk being introduced by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and all the uncertainty that that brings going forward. We know a lot more now here at the end of August than we did uh, in March and, and April about where COVID is going and the economic impacts. But back then, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. That uncertainty is a part of the marketplace, it's part of the risks, and, and in my opinion, should be reflected in the values of bonds that are particularly impacted by um, uh, the COVID-19 um, uh, events. Uh, and that could be toll roads and, and senior housing and, and nursing homes and and, and other entertainment like projects like museums where people aren't just willing to walk in and, and, and do things the way they used to do it before COVID. All that uncertainty was elevated then. I believe it's still elevated now, but we do know a little bit more now than we didn't know then. But back then, given that uncertainty, the valuations of certain securities based on trades seemed to me to be relatively high versus the risk as we knew it uh, based on COVID-19 at the time. Any chance you might be able to name some of the credits whose trading uh, raised some red flags? Uh, at this time, I cannot. Oh, that's too bad, yeah. Well, like you were saying, there's, you know, we have the lack of liquidity can mean that we're not seeing bond prices uh, you know, bonds reflecting economic events. One credit we've been writing about, we've written a, 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 a lot of these different credits, um, Brightline, American Dream, and a lot of others. But one that we've also written about is an Indiana tire plant called Pyrolex, which is a little bit of an extreme example. Uh, but these guys are actually in default. And I haven't checked it in the last few days, but as of last week, I think the bonds were still on paper valued at 97 or or, you know, they were a few months ago after being in default at 99, almost a par. Now they're about 97. So that can show a sign of a disconnect. Um, you mentioned earlier the tools and why now, you know, now you're seeing that there's these better tools. So if we're not seeing the trading, if we don't see the trades, what other tools do pricing service experts have to try to figure out where a bond should be? From my point of view, there are bonds out there in the marketplace that 
the pricing services need to make a determination as to whether a market approach to valuation, in other words, looking for comparable securities that have traded in the marketplace, can can help them gauge a value of a, of a bond that hasn't traded. They have to make a determination of that market value approach or taking a fair value approach because the valuation of individual bonds can be driven by underlying economic or fundamental credit factors as opposed to where other bonds are trading. If you can't reflect, the, if you can't compare a credit to others that have traded, then you've got to take the approach of a fair value uh, approach in valuating securities. That fair value approach first should be um, uh, very transparent to the pricing service users that you have, that they have transitioned from a market approach to a fair value approach, and then should follow certain practices. Getting independent information, often that that can be that can come from the MSRB um, and and EMA websites. It can come directly from the issuers themselves or the trustee of the securities themselves, and in some cases, it can come from uh, the institutions that own the bond. But in those cases, the independent pricing service should also go and verify that information from other third-party sources. That step of making that determination of whether to continue to value the bond using a market value approach or a, a more fair value approach is really very critical in the evaluation process. In my point of view, technology permits that transition to help more rapidly than ever before. The computer systems that we have today are able to grab information very quickly, uh, whether it be a disclosure event from an issuer or whether it be uh, financials are available uh, to be analyzed uh, by anybody in the marketplace. Um, all of that becomes information that's now much more readily available to use as for, from a pricing service perspective. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about pricing services, but they are, they are really a tool for mutual funds to use. And the pricing obligation is actually on the mutual fund board of directors. So if they see a price of a bond that's not reflecting the current economic situation or credit risk profile uh, or any other reason to challenge a price, they can override that price. They don't have to use an independent pricing service. The obligation to properly value the security in every security in a, in a fund lies on the board of directors of that mutual fund. Their oversight of pricing services should be part of that process. And in particular, when a pricing service chooses to use a fair value approach, why and what information was used uh, during that analysis becomes important for everybody to know, that transparency. But again, as technology has moved us forward, we're able to handle many more securities than ever before and review a lot more information than ever before. And as we, as we, you and I know, there's a lot more information even coming out on, on the impact of COVID-19 now. Um, all that information needs to be digested by pricing services to understand the impact of potential credit impairment of those municipal issuers and what it might mean to the valuation of those securities. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough job. And 
you know, as we know, there's that, that, that interplay between the mutual funds and the pricing service vendors. And we often, or we, you know, we often hear stories of portfolio managers who, cha- who do challenge the prices. Um, and then sort of the independence of the, of the pricing services vendors becomes key at that point. If we could just take one step back and explain how it works in the muni market, how many vendors there are, uh, what the process is, you know, without going too deep into it, and, and how they're paid and all of that. Well, I'll give it a try. There, there are um, Bloomberg, IHS Market, um, ICE, formerly IDC, and, and Refinitiv, all providing uh, municipal bond pricing. I believe Mergent may also provide municipal bond pricing. Um, still, I'm, I'm not sure. But there's not that many pricing services that do the volume of pricing that is needed for mutual fund and net asset value calculations. We're actually talking about well over 100,000 individual municipal bonds are held by mutual funds. That's a lot of bonds to value on, a, on any given day. And their, their job is to reflect the end of day price, not the price of where it traded at 10 o'clock. That becomes irrelevant as interest rate and market dynamics change between 10 o'clock and the end of the day, whether it be three o'clock or four o'clock marks. That process of valuing securities is often a model-driven approach where they can look at base yield curves that reflect the higher quality parts of the market, AAA and AA, and reflect where other bonds are trading based on comparable securities. So if I value in a AA general obligation bond, and there's another AA bond that traded in the marketplace that has similar uh, duration and quality characteristics, that's a trade that, that could be used to help value a bond that hasn't yet traded in the secondary market today. That market approach to valuation is the predominant approach to price the entire universe of municipal bonds of approximately 1.4 or 1.5 million individual QCIPs that exist in the marketplace. Characteristics become very important. The type of issuer, how frequent the issuer comes to market is also a um, uh, important factor in valuing that security. Being able to find comparable securities that look and smell like the securities you're trying to value is important for that market approach to work and consistency in the application of that approach across all securities is really critical for the pricing service to have credibility in the marketplace. Unfortunately, in the municipal bond market, we've got a range of different securities. We've got many different issuers, over 50,000 different issuers, different term structures um, in regards to call features, sinking funds, um, maturity, um, uh, which all result in different duration characteristics, uh, different quality characteristics. There are many bonds that are not rated by any nationally recognized statistical ratings organization, Moody's S&P or Fitch. Uh, so all that becomes part of the dynamic that pricing services wrestle with. From defaulted bonds all the way up to AAA, the approach has got to be consistent. And what I mean consistent, if you're using a market value approach and the, for the majority of the bonds priced by these pricing services, they are, 
uh, then finding comparables, whether it be bonds sold in the primary market or, or similar looking securities by the factors we just discussed becomes really important in that process. There are many securities that don't have free flowing disclosure, uh, that don't have secondary market trade activity or frequent secondary market trade activity. Those securities when valuing for a mutual fund need to be understood from the credit perspective so that you can make relative comparisons of one bond to another. You have, you have to understand the credit. So for those pricing services need to have people who understand credit, know how to look at credits from a fundamental credit analysis perspective, can make a comparison between one bond to another so that if they're using a market approach, they can justify relating one bond to another bond or groups of bonds. Where the disconnect is, and was what we talked about before, is making that transition from a market approach to a fundamental or fair value approach, which, which is a, a big decision in my mind, because no longer is that valuation based on, on the hierarchy of, of trades that have occurred and two-sided bids that are available in the, in the secondary market. The valuation now is determined by a fair value approach, which is based on the underlying fundamental credit what cash flow can be reasonably expected uh, to be received by bondholders, when, what litigation is underway, what other costs are being incurred uh, before bondholders get any funds at all, is there a liquidation of, of brick and mortar or other assets that are involved, when will that occur? All these determinations become part of the fair value approach to valuation requires information and it requires a skill set necessary to digest that information. Digging deep into the credit. Yeah, you really have to dig into securities that are illiquid and in my view, distressed or potentially could be distressed um, to ensure that your valuation is representative, representative of the current situation. To get that information, pricing services aren't bondholders. They, of course, will use whatever's public, and, and I'm referring to the MSRB and MI websites, or get information directly from the issuers. But again, they're not bondholders, so some information does flow from the bondholders themselves, like mutual funds, who, who can share information such as of, of financial reports that may not have been disclosed broadly. Uh, and that could be the case where bonds are only held by one or two or three institutions where that financial disclosure is not flowing broadly to the market, it's flowing to uh, those few holders. To get that information though is critical and to verify the information independently of the, of the bondholders, in this case mutual funds, is also important. That valuation process, particularly for non-liquid uh, and uh, distressed or potentially distressed securities, in my mind, is an important approach. It's, been, it's a validated approach. It's been used for years. Uh, it just needs to be fully disclosed based on information that's verifiable and decisions made uh, by skill sets 
that understand how to review the fundamental credit, the potential cash flow to bondholders, and when they might be able to receive that cash flow. Just to, in, when you're talking about fair value here, you know, the, as, as you know, the SEC is um, currently uh, proposing a new rule, uh, 2A-5, under the Investment Company Act of 1940 that would address valuation practices and the role of fund boards uh, with respect to fair value investments. Um, and that rule would provide requirements for determining fair value in good faith, and that determination would involve overseeing and evaluating pricing services. Can you talk a little bit about what this proposed rule um, might mean and what you think the SEC is trying to achieve here? Well, I'm not wearing the SEC hats, uh, so I'm not. I'm, I can only guess at what they're trying to achieve. But I'm, I was delighted to see this proposed rule two A five as a as a pricing service. Um, uh, DNA ripples through my body here. It, you know, to see this come from the SEC, uh, confirming a few things that are important to me is uh, it was was very uh, positive. From my perspective, mutual funds may see it another way, but I see it as a very positive step. And we'll see what happens with this evolution as the, as the SEC reviews the feedback that they that they were expecting um, in July. So, what some of the things that are, are that caught my attention uh, right away was that the the proposed rule two A five reaffirms that bond pricing is the responsibility of the fund board of directors. It does not permit that anybody to lay off that responsibility. The, the buck ends at the board of directors of, of the mutual fund. Proposes that the funds periodically assess the risks in valuations of securities held in the funds. And, and that's a wonderful step. If, there, if the risks have changed, for example, in March 2020, when the COVID-19 event rippled through the bond markets, well, that that was a that was a time period where the the uh, those risks needed to be assessed, and and if the processes needed to change to reflect those risks, then then that is a time period where perhaps that proposal could have helped. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it squarely also puts the valuation process under the oversight of the mutual funds chief compliance officer. There's no, dis there's no disparity here. The chief compliance officer under this proposal would have the responsibility for ensuring the that the processes are in place for oversight. It does go into the oversight of third-party pricing services. And I think you know, my experience has been that mutual funds have done oversight on independent pricing services, the degree and the depth and the competency of that oversight varies by institution. And perhaps this will make it more consistent uh, if it's adopted. One of the things that it also brings to light is it, it, it forces the identification of those securities where fair valuation methodology was used, as opposed to that market approach that we talked about. Mm -hmm. If fair valuation is being used, this discloses that, and I think that's very important. It also goes into the oversight of fair valuation methodology and the, the identification and mitigation of internal conflicts that may exist. I think one of you mentioned that portfolio managers have challenged prices or, or given their opinions of prices to pricing services directly. Well, this would identify that as a, a, an area of, of potential conflict of interest 
I do want to note that many mutual funds prohibit their portfolio managers from talking directly to a pricing service. Uh, that, that step is already in place. But for those fund families that don't have it in place, the adoption of 2A5 would, as, it, as drafted, would force the identification and the potential mitigation of that conflict of interest. So, so in my view, uh, many, other, many funds already are aligned with this proposal. Some funds are less strict in their observance of internal conflicts of interest than others. The transparency from pricing providers on methodology, and in particular fair valuation methodology transparency, when it's used, is highlighted and is a good thing for the business to evolve into. So I think it's a very good step forward. Uh, we'll see what changes are made, if any, and, and whether it's adopted. And just on that note, one of the things that someone raised a concern for me, they said, you know, it's kind of a fox in charge of a chicken coop here because the proposed rule would pro would allow the fund's board of directors to assign fair value determination to an investment advisor of the fund who would then carry out, out those functions um, for some or all of the fund's investments. So I guess at the end of the day, is the board still responsible? Do, I mean, do you see any kind of conflict of interest here where an investment advisor, you know, the fund company who is paying for this evaluation is the one challenging the price. And obviously these fund managers are compensated by how well they do. I mean, is it is it still a problem the way this rule is proposed? Well, I think I read that, those sentences as well. And, and mm -hmm. the first point I wanna address there is that the board of directors obviously can't value the individual securities themselves. Uh, they do need to delegate that mm -hmm. process. Uh, that's a given. The oversight and responsibility of the actual prices used ends up with the board of board of directors. That is very very clear. Um, how it's delegated, what are the rules of the road are, um, uh, you know, is the portfolio manager uh, a part of that valuation process? Are they hiring independent pricing services? What is the interaction with those independent pricing services? Do they have the ability to override a price under what circumstances and what's the process? All of that needs to be part of the rules of the road within that organization. And then culture, you know, if, if mm -hmm. you know, you can't legislate culture, um, but in, in most of the mutual funds that, that I've had the pleasure of interacting with, the culture has been very, very good. They're, they're, they understand their obligation, their fair, the properly valued securities. In other cases, it's a little more gray. So putting the rules of the road together to me is a good thing. Uh, you did mention um, the interactions with pricing services. Yes, pricing services are paid by mutual funds to value lists of securities, not necessarily um, uh, blindly, but they, they, get, they get lists of securities uh, they don't necessarily always know how many securities or um, how, how much of that security is held by an institution, uh, but it is, it is um, a high volume business and they are paid to provide a, a independent perspective on the value of those securities. Um, is there a conflict of interest? Uh, you know, on the, on the surface, I can see why people see that there might be a conflict of interest. Um, uh, that'd be like me paying a, an appraiser for my home when I want to uh, sell the home, you know, that the higher the price, the better for me. 
But um, from my perspective, there's little conflict of interest because at the end of the day, those prices can be overridden by the institution that's paying for those prices. If that capability wasn't there and it was just a, um, uh, uh, a relationship of the fund paying for services and those prices had to be used by the institution, uh, that would raise questions in my, in my mind as to how do you ensure the independence of those prices. But uh, because the prices can be overridden, if the fund doesn't like a price, well, they can use a different price. Um, you know, it, that, that is not a worry of the pricing service. It's a worry of the bond fund itself. And here's follow up with a couple of uh, more questions. Um, what, first of all, as there is no kind of standard, you know, um, recipe among these, you know, pricing services for what they have to take into account to arrive at fair value of a security. Um, do you think that maybe there should be some standardization, whether, I don't know, it's the MSRB or somebody comes up with something that says, you know, this is what you have to evaluate. Um, and also, um, What's next for the association? I, I agree with you that that standards are a, um, a uh, something to to strive for uh, in in the bond pricing business. I think you get to standards by developing best practices, and to develop best practices, there has to be education. Um, there has to be tools for the pricing securities analysts. There has to be the opportunity for them to, to learn about how to interpret data and the and how to assure the independence of the data they're using. Uh, all of that's got to be a part of that best practice approach. Um, and I, whether it be legislated or regulated um, or solved by good business introducing good sound best practices. Um, it doesn't make a difference to me. I would rather see it be solved by, by the businesses providing pricing data to the marketplace uh, in a free enterprise capitalistic world. You, you'd expect uh, a good pricing service to step up and lever best practices wherever possible and educate their teams and their, their individual pricing analysts on a constant learning process so that they're constantly improving on a number of factors, whether it be the depth of independence or their ability to review fundamental credit or, or even their ability to review financial statements. All that is our skill sets that would be beneficial to developing uh, for a pricing team over time. To my view, the pricing association is there to facilitate those best practices wherever possible, uh, educate uh, and provide uh, the advocacy that the pricing analysts have not enjoyed all these years. That they have been out, out there performing services in a variety of different ways and methodologies, but that lack of consistency reflects itself in, in disparate valuations on securities where clearly there's a distress or an economic impact that's not being reflected. And it can be a tough job, I guess, especially if you've got some kind of um, very unusual uh, snowflake, as one uh, portfolio manager put it for me, of uh, a security that really doesn't have a comp out there, a very kind of unusual thing that's difficult to 
really a fix of value to. So I think that they have kind of a tough job. I think they do have a very tough job, but that's when they have to be able to, to say confidently that, look, comps aren't going to work for this security, Mr. and Mrs. Client. We're going to take a fundamental approach and look at the security from, from the ground up and see what cash flows actually could be expected to be received by bondholders as opposed to doing you know, the, what bond pricing math does, which is discount the cash flows of a, of a bond. Uh, as dictated by the official statement, uh, the best way to approach, in, in my view, the best way to approach an illiquid and illiquid or distressed security is to look at it from the bottom up and, and actually determine for yourself what the cash flow actually looks like, whether it be a liquidation or a cram down or a workout or, or other variation of outcomes that occur. Well, thank you, JR. Very interesting. We'll be following and talking to you and writing about the trade association as you start to get it up and running. We should mention you're doing it with two other people. I don't know if you quickly want to tell us who those two other people are on the board of directors. Yeah, so we there's three of us. Um, Ian Blantz from Voltaire Advisors, formerly of um, IDC Pricing in, in his history. Frank Zaccato, formerly president of S&P Securities Evaluations, and um, also a veteran of IDC, now ICE pricing, and myself are the three board of directors. And our intent is to provide this foundation for the members to, to take the ball and run with it and focus on where best practices can best help the industry best help individual firms and best help individual securities pricing analysts uh, develop uh, and, and bring that consistency uh, from a skill set perspective to the marketplace. All right. Sounds great. Well, we will be following it. And thanks again for taking the time this morning. It was fun. Thanks for having me. JR, many thanks again. Uh, thank you to Keelan and Kathy O'Donnell for um, the talk. Uh, again, it's called Global Association of Securities Pricing Analysts, correct? That's correct. All right, JR. JR Rieger, thank you for your time. Kaylin Devitt, Kathy O'Donnell, and Christian Ayala, who is our producer for today. Thanks to everybody. For the, our listeners out there, please tune in week after week for the latest on distressed mini debt on the mini lowdown. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the mini lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.